Well, a very good morning to each and every one of you. Uh, in this morning's time of preaching, we're going to be exploring the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the Word of God, uh, specifically the illumination of the reader or the hearer of Scripture. And I thought that a good uh, lead-in and help to our subject would be chapter 1, paragraph 5 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Here's how it reads. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Once again, this morning, we're going to be preaching on the illumination that the Spirit gives uh, and the relationship of the Spirit to the Bible that he has inspired. So God bless you now as you continue in worship. Lord God, we pray your Spirit's enrichment, your Spirit's encouragement, uh, the, the sobering effect that your spirit has as well. Come now, walk closely with us as we discuss the things of your word and open your word. And Father, may we not be left the same after this worship service as we were when we came in, but we pray even now that your spirit would be pleased to transform us, change us, so that we look increasingly more like Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during the course of this uh, series of sermons that we've been undertaking, we've touched on what Carl Henry called the indissoluble bond between the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Spirit and Word go together. And there are several ways in which the Spirit and the Bible are organically, uh, enduringly connected. First of all, as we've already discussed, the Spirit provided the revelation that is the Scripture. He breathed out His Word through the minds and through the hearts of the biblical authors, or, using another term, the Spirit inspired Scripture. One of the most crucial Bible descriptions of the inspiration of Scripture is 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit inspired the Bible. And the Spirit has also worked 
to preserve his word, to preserve his word through the ages. The Spirit has preserved his written revelation from from one generation to the next generation, and he has done that through the fallible processes of human copying, human transmission, translation. And the evidence that the Spirit has preserved his word, the evidence that this is a true fact, is that to this day, people continue to be converted. People continue to be changed powerfully as they read the word and as they hear the word. But this morning, our focus is not on the Spirit's work of inspiring the Scriptures, and neither is it on the Spirit's work of preserving the Scriptures. Rather, what we want to focus on today is the Spirit's work of illuminating the reader of the Scriptures, the Spirit's work of illumination. Now, when we use this word illumination in connection with the Spirit and the Bible, what are we talking about? Well, in simple terms, illumination is this. It is the work of the Holy Spirit on human minds and hearts to bring persons or to enable persons to see God's Word for what it is, to grasp or comprehend its significance, to love it, to trust it, and to apply it. One more time. The term illumination, when used in connection with the Spirit and the Bible, is the work of the Holy Spirit on human minds and hearts to bring persons or to enable persons to see God's Word for what it is, to grasp or comprehend its significance, to love it, to trust it, and to apply it. Now, here's your quiz on that definition, and this actually is an important question. What is it precisely that is illumined by the Holy Spirit? Is it the Bible itself that is illumined by the Spirit, or is it the reader or the hearer of the Bible who is illumined? Answer, the Spirit's work is to illumine human minds and hearts. The text of the Bible needs no illumination. As Psalm 119.105 says, the Bible is a lamp and a light. And lamps and lights don't need more light on them. Lamps and lights are lights already. The Bible does not need the Spirit to illumine it. Instead, it is human minds and hearts darkened by sin, darkened morally and spiritually, that need the Spirit's illuminating light. My friends, we need the mud to be taken off of our eyes, so to speak, so that we can see the shining sun that is God's revelation in his word. 
Again, this point is so important. The Spirit's work is to illumine not the text of Scripture itself that he exhaled into our world perfectly. Rather, the Spirit's work is to illumine the darkened human mind and heart, to illumine the human being who is reading Scripture or hearing Scripture. Let's talk more about this. What we notice in Psalm 119 is that the psalmist never prays, Lord, change these texts in front of me. Put some sort of backlight behind these murky texts because they are inherently unclear. The psalmist never prays that way. Nor does he pray, Lord, give me additional passages, new revelations that go beyond the bounds of my Bible. My Bible is not enough. The psalmist doesn't pray those sorts of things either. Instead, what does the psalmist pray in Psalm 119 over and over again? He prays, verse 18, listen to the language, open what? My eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. The psalmist recognizes that it's his spiritual sight that is blocked, and so he needs the Spirit's power if he would see the wondrous things that are already sitting there in the word of God. Or in verse 27 he prays, Make me understand the ways of your precepts. It was his own understanding of the Lord's precepts that needed help, not the precepts themselves. Or verse 34, his prayer is, give me understanding. And that same prayer pops up again in verses 73 and 125 and 169. And we also have verse 144, which reads, listen to this verse, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. In that verse, the psalmist acknowledges the eternal righteousness of God's testimonies, right? The eternal righteousness of the words or the text that God had given him, that God had exhaled. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Again, the psalmist knows that the actual text needs no help from the Spirit. It's the psalmist who does. And so his prayer, give me understanding that I may live. Friends, as we approach Scripture, the necessary change that must happen is in us. It's not in the Scriptures themselves. The Scriptures are already a lamp and a light, perfectly clear. We talked about that last week. The Spirit does not need to improve on the Scriptures or add new revelations to what he has already inspired. When the freshly risen Jesus 
walked along the Emmaus Road with two of his confused disciples in Luke 24, when the minds of those disciples were opened, and when they experienced spiritual heartburn as Jesus expounded the scriptures to them, what was happening there? Here's what was happening. Jesus himself was illuminating their minds and hearts to the things that were already written in the scriptures. Jesus was not providing any new scriptures to these disciples, nor was Jesus erasing or correcting or improving upon any supposedly unclear scriptures. Rather, Jesus directed his focus where? To the darkened hearts and cloudy minds of those two disciples. He was causing those two disciples to comprehend, to see the light that was already there, to connect in their minds and hearts the Old Testament, the revelation of the Old Testament, with the person of Jesus and his work and his teaching. Again, our point here, friends, God illumines persons. Illumination is a divine enlightening of human minds and hearts to the things of God in the Scriptures. It is not an enlightening of an already brilliantly shining, perfect Bible. The Bible needs no improvement. The Bible needs no light in and of itself. The Spirit will not amend His exhalation, called the Bible, nor will he correct it or add to it. But let's deepen in with our discussion of how the Spirit works with the Bible that he has breathed out. Now, although, as we have tried to make clear, the Spirit's illumination is not an illumination of the Bible, it is, nevertheless, an illumination that takes place with the Bible or using the Bible. Again, the Spirit's illumination is not an illumination of the Bible itself. It is rather an illumination of the human reader of the Bible, as we've said. But the Spirit's illumination is an illumination that happens with the Bible. So not, not of, but with. Illumination happens by the Spirit's use of the Bible. As Carl Henry put it, quote, the Word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of His Spirit to believers. Again, the Word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of His Spirit to believers. Now, we want to talk for a minute about the Spirit's work of what we call self-authenticating the Scriptures. Self-authenticating the Scriptures. One of the symptoms of COVID-19, apparently, can be the loss of taste and the loss of smell. 
An unregenerated, unsaved person reading Scripture without the Holy Spirit is like a person who utterly lacks smell and taste. That unregenerate person can see the data that is before him. He may be able to make some cognitive sense out of what he is reading, but he can't taste the glory of it or smell the fragrance of it, and thus he ends up rejecting it. But when the Holy Spirit, listen, when the Holy Spirit removes the scales from that person's eyes, takes the mud off, and draws him to Christ so that he receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, when the Spirit awakens that person, regenerates him, the Spirit witnesses to that person the truth of the Bible, and the glory of God in the Bible. This is a gift from the Holy Spirit of God. Now the person sees, really sees, with eyes wide open, with with the mud taken off the eyes now, the spiritual eyes, he senses the light of the Bible. This is the inner witness of the Spirit. Now the Bible self-authenticates to that person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where the person's spiritual senses were dead to the Word before, where he had no smell or taste for the Word of God before, now he tastes the sweetness of, of the food and can declare and can exult with the psalmist, Lord, your ordinances are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. They are, says the psalmist, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The reformer John Calvin, in his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, wrote at some length concerning this phenomenon of the inner testimony or the inner witness of the Spirit, this work that the Spirit does in the believer where he self-authenticates Scripture. I want you to listen carefully to J.I. Packer's description of the phenomenon. Packer asks the question, what is this inner witness? And then Packer says, quote, it's not a special quality of experience, nor a new private revelation, nor an existential decision But it's a work of enlightenment, a work of enlightenment, whereby through the medium of verbal testimony, in other words, through the medium of the written text of Scripture, 
The blind eyes of the Spirit are opened and divine realities come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. This recognition, Calvin said, is as immediate and unanalyzable as the perceiving of a color or a taste by physical sense. An event about which no more can be said than this, that when appropriate stimuli were present, it happened. And when it happened, we know it had happened. Close quote. In the first sermon in this series, I told you the story about receiving my first ever Bible at the tender age of eight from the Grace Church School in Edmonton. It was a children's living Bible, and I still have that Bible. It's pictured on the screen along with the uh, presentation page. At age eight, when I got that Bible, I began to read it in the privacy of my room. I was not yet born again. I was not yet saved. But I remember being struck at least, struck at least by the strangeness of what I was reading. By the oddness of it. Even then, it seemed somehow captivating. My eight-year-old brain could understand some basics concerning the stories, concerning the commands and the reflections that I was reading. I had a sense, even then as I read, I had a sense that somehow this book might be important. But in the end, after reading it for a significant period of time, I concluded that it was just too weird to spend much more time with it, and I put it away, and I got on with being an eight-year-old kid, uh, playing street hockey, catching bees in jars, and that sort of thing. But then about 12 years later, I'm 20 years old, and I'm converted to Jesus Christ in a school gymnasium in Woodbridge, Ontario, then my reading of the Bible, my hearing of the Bible, my view of the Bible changed dramatically and changed in a very striking measure. Now, to borrow some words from Calvin, now the Spirit opened my eyes to the majesty of the realities in the Bible. The Spirit took the mud off my eyes so that now I saw and I tasted what Calvin calls the heavenliness and the sincerity and the unique beauty of the Bible. My heart was struck now with the weight and with the order and with the glory and the urgency and the force of this written revelation. Now, the glory of the Jesus who is described in the scriptures, now that came into view. I now had an inner 
certainty that this book was of divine origin. And my hunger for the Word of God increased sharply. Praise God for His Spirit's gift to the believer where He self-authenticates the Scriptures in this mighty way. Now, a helpful Scripture passage that we can engage here as we speak on this subject is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul draws a distinction in this passage between two kinds of people who he calls natural persons and spiritual persons. Now, just using my own experience as an illustration here, the natural person that Paul describes in verse 14 is the unsaved, unregenerate, eight-year-old Brent trying to read his Bible in his bedroom. The spiritual person that Paul describes in verse 15 is the Brent at age 20 and following, now regenerated by the Spirit with faith in Jesus Christ. But we're going to focus especially this morning on what Paul says concerning the natural person in verse 14. Read this with me. Paul says here, listen to the words, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now we're going to do some work here together. I hope you're ready to do a little bit of work with me. For starters, focus your, your attention with me on that verb in the verse, the verb accept. The natural, unsaved person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Greek word here that we translate as accept, listen, this word has to do with being receptive to something or welcoming something. Being receptive to something or welcoming something. The natural, unregenerate, unsaved person does not welcome the things of God. She does not willingly receive the things of God. Or, to quote Daniel Fuller here, quote, apart from the Holy Spirit, a person does not accept what the Bible teaches with pleasure, with willingness, and with eagerness. In other words, the natural person does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. Now, maybe you're a person who has a family member or a co-worker or a close friend who appears to be unreceptive and in some cases even hostile to the things of God. You've tried to share those things with the person and they're just, they're unreceptive and even icy concerning it. I want you to take heart. God here in his revelation, he describes exactly what's happening with that person. It's not your fault 
that they are being unreceptive. It's that the Spirit of God has not yet awakened them. So keep praying that he will awaken that person and keep exercising patience with that person. Paul says here, the natural person does not accept or welcome or receive the things of God. And why? Because, as he says here, the things of God are folly to that natural person. The things of God are foolishness to that natural person. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. The idea here is not, is not, that the person hears or reads the things of God from the Bible and finds those things to be complete, non-understandable, unintelligible gibberish. It's not that. Rather, the idea here is that the person has read or has heard the things of God and has gained a basic cognitive level understanding of the things that he or she has read or heard and understanding them at that level has rejected those things as foolish. Like I basically did as an eight-year-old natural person. I read, I understood in a basic intellectual measure as much as I could at age eight unsaved. I understood as much as I could. And basically, understanding it, I failed to accept or failed to welcome what I read. But Dunbar, you say, doesn't the very next part of the verse say that the natural person is not able to understand the things of God, because those things are spiritually discerned. You just argued, pastor, that the natural person does have an understanding, at least a cognitive understanding of the things of God, and with that understanding, rejects those things as foolish. So Dunbar, how do you square that argument you just made with this part of the verse that says that the natural person is not able to understand the things of God? It's a great question. And again, this is another place where translation into English from the Greek can be a little tricky. Listen. When we look at the English word understand, we would probably be prepared to say, I think, that the basic meaning of the word understand is to perceive the meaning of something or to grasp the meaning of something, to understand. And that's the basic meaning that we tend to assign here as we read the word understand in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person is not able to perceive the meaning of the things of God. Like, the things of God are essentially gibberish to the natural person. But here's the thing, friends. 
Our English word, think of this with me for a moment, our English word understand can have a different meaning. It can also mean to perceive not the meaning of something, but to perceive the significance of something. There's a difference. Consider the following sentence with me. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Now, we can perceive the basic meaning of that sentence. We can understand the essential meaning of that sentence. The essential meaning of the sentence is that the civil war that was happening in that nation was testing its ability to endure as a nation. We understand the basic meaning of the words in the sentence. But to understand this sentence on the second level, where we perceive the significance of the words here, it's going to mean knowing that the sentence is taken from Abraham Lincoln's influential Gettysburg Address. If we know that the sentence comes from the Gettysburg Address, then we understand the sentence in the second sense of the word. We understand not just the basic meaning of the words, we understand the significance of the words. What's my point here? Why the grammar lesson? Well, the point is that our English word understand, as we've tried to show, has more than one meaning. And you may have already guessed the original Greek word in the text of 1 Corinthians 2.14 also has more than one shade of meaning. Here, the meaning Paul most likely intended is the meaning to grasp the significance of. The natural person does not grasp the significance of what he's reading or hearing from God's Word, even though on an intellectual or cognitive level, he does perceive the basic meaning of it. He gets the basic meaning of the words, he just doesn't see the significance. So all in all then, the verse says to us that the unsaved, unregenerate person does not accept, does not welcome the things of God, even though that person has understood those things at a basic intellectual level, having grasped the basics, that person does what? He or she writes off the things of God as foolish, as folly. That person is not able to grasp the significance of what he or she is reading, even though, again, she has a basic cognitive grasp of the content. And this is the case for that natural person. Why? Because, as Paul says next, the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying here that a human being needs the Spirit's work. We need the Spirit's power 
the Spirit's enablement, the Spirit's presence, if we are to welcome and receive and see the significance of the things of God in the Bible. A person needs the gift of the Spirit if he or she would find the things of God in Scripture wise. If he or she would see the Bible as significant for one's life. If he or she would taste the honey of Scripture and see the glory of the things in Scripture. Daniel Fuller says this, quote, Not being indwelt by the Spirit, the natural man has no ability to see the worth or the value of biblical teachings, and this is why he does not know them in the sense of seeing their significance. And so the Spirit of God is then what we might call the empowering presence of the Word. The empowering presence of the Word, to borrow Kevin Van Hooser's term. The Spirit works with the Word and through the Word on human minds and hearts. The Spirit takes the mud off our darkened spiritual eyes and the Spirit causes us to see the lamp and light that is the Word. To see the Word and to love the Word for what it is. In the words of Paul Helm, the Spirit, quote, heightens the mind's awareness of the marks of divinity present in the text in such a way as to produce the conviction that the text is indeed the product of the divine mind and therefore to be relied on utterly, close quote. And I also very much like what Carl Henry said about the Spirit's illumination. Henry said that when we are illumined by the Spirit, quote, we recognize God and the treasures of his kindness that are revealed in his word. And without the Spirit's illumination, Henry says, our mind is blinded so that it can see nothing, so dull that it can sense nothing of spiritual things. It's Carl Henry. Or listen to John Calvin writing in the 16th century. Calvin said, and I love this, he said, as we cannot come to Christ unless we be drawn by the Spirit of God, so when we are drawn, We are lifted up in mind and heart above our understanding. For the soul, illumined by him, takes on a new keenness, as it were, to contemplate the heavenly mysteries whose splendor had previously blinded it. And man's understanding, says Calvin, man's understanding thus beamed by the light of the Holy Spirit 
then at last truly begins to taste those things which belong to the kingdom of God, having formerly been quite foolish and dull in tasting them. It's John Calvin. Now we would be remiss if we also didn't stress here that when the Holy Spirit causes the believer to welcome, to accept the things of God in Scripture, that welcoming, that acceptance of the things of God includes, listen, it includes a volitional facet. Or we could say it includes the touching of the human will and the movement of the human will. The Spirit works to produce human obedience to the commands that He has inspired in His Word. It's not just that the Spirit causes a person to see, perceive, and grasp things through the, through the person's exposure to the Word. It's that the Spirit also works to convict us and produce God-glorifying results, changed actions in us. The Spirit persuades and the persuasion results in our obedient action. Well, now our time is almost up again. And I want to end off here today by saying that one of the very sweetest truths that we could ever mention concerning the Holy Spirit and His Word is that what, what the Spirit wants to talk to us most about, what the Spirit wants to talk to us most about, is not Himself, but rather He lives to talk about and to witness to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Think of it. Everything that the Spirit inspired in the first 39 books of Scripture, in other words, everything the Spirit inspired in the Old Testament, points to Jesus and prophesies of Jesus and is a shadow of Jesus. And everything that the Spirit inspired in the latter 27 books of the Bible, in other words, everything that he inspired in the New Testament, unfolds the significance of Jesus. It is clear, is it not, that the Holy Spirit of God, who is sent by the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit wants to talk most about the Son. The Spirit desires to glorify Jesus, to point us to Jesus, to magnify Jesus. When Jesus spoke of the Spirit to his disciples in John 15, 26, prior to his crucifixion, as he's speaking to his disciples, he said that when the Spirit came, the Spirit would do what? It would bear witness about him about Jesus. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. The Spirit, we could put it like this, is Christocentric. The Spirit is Christocentric. The Spirit lives to bring glory to the Son of God. 
By his word, the Spirit brings us to faith in the Son of God, and the Spirit ministers the Son of God to us. Jesus is the focus of the entire word of God, and thus he is the focus of the Spirit, the happy focus of the Spirit who exhaled the word. The Spirit tells us plainly concerning the name of Jesus in Acts 4.12, the Spirit tells us that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in Acts 2.21, the Spirit assures us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from sin and saved from the wrath of God. How? By the sacrificial, atoning blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus who bore God's wrath as the substitute for his elect. I pray for you, my friend, that if it hasn't already happened, that the Spirit would take the mud off your eyes. It is possible for a person to be a regular in church for decades and still be unregenerated by God's Spirit. Tragic, but very true. And so if the Spirit's awakening has not yet happened in your life, I pray that it will. I pray that the Spirit would be pleased to awaken you and save you and bring you to Jesus Christ. That you would come to see suddenly, that you would come to see by the power of the Spirit, that you would see the glory of God, that you would see your desperate condition without Him, your need of the Savior Jesus Christ, your need of the divine forgiveness that is found only in Him. My earnest prayer, my friend, is that you would fly to Jesus Christ, surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and taste and see that He is good. And for those of us who already are believers today, here's my prayer. My prayer is that the Spirit would work increased dependence in us. I know that I need that. I need to be increasingly dependent on the Spirit. He needs to work on that in my life every single day. That He would work increased dependence in us and that we would come to depend on Him, depend on the Spirit more than we already do as we read our Bible, as we listen to preaching, as we interpret and study the Scriptures, as we live our lives. And that the Spirit would take each of us to new places in obedience to His Word for His glory, for our benefit, and for the flourishing of the human community. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for sending your Son. Father and Son, we praise you for sending the Spirit. Spirit, we praise you 
for inspiring your word, for illuminating your word, for awakening us, for renewing us, cleansing us. God, our Trinitarian God, we are just so thankful this morning and we pray that you would continue to work your word deep into our bones, that we would be people who, as Charles Spurgeon once said, would bleed Bible if someone cut us, and not only bleed Bible, but live the Bible, be doers of the word. We pray, Father, this week, that you would nudge us toward obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.